There are certain things that Luke keeps repeating over and over again. And the sense is he wants this part of the narrative to start to become your own. He wants this aspect of the birth of the church to be a reality in this church. Now I say all of that just to emphasize again, all the way through the narrative of Acts is the theme of suffering and servanthood. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the final part of our three-part series with Pastor Paul Twiss. Our series is titled, Paul's Gospel and Ours, taken from the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 1 through 23. This portion of scripture records the Apostle Paul's testimony before King Agrippa, shortly before he was sent to Rome. The Apostle recounts to the king a gripping account of his pharisaic zeal in persecuting Christians, to his vision on the Damascus Road, and then to being sent by Christ to evangelize the Gentiles, where suffering was the rule. Paul later wrote 13 epistles to the churches he established in his missionary journeys, and his themes in those letters would often be suffering and servanthood. King Agrippa appeared to be touched by Paul's testimony and later lamented to the governor, quote, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, end quote. The gospel Paul shared with the king is a model for all believers as we give witness to the saving resurrection power of the gospel. Here's part three of Paul's gospel and ours. Notice that it says in verse 11, he tried to make them blaspheme. The trying, the particular tense there suggests he didn't succeed, that the Christians were faithful to not blaspheme. But we could ask the question, what would that blasphemy look like? And the answer would be, it would look like making a Christian say, Jesus is cursed. That is what Jews and Pharisees considered of Jesus. Jesus is cursed. Why? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. The Lord that you proclaim hangs upon a tree. Therefore, say he's cursed. That is what first century blasphemy looks like. Saul was a persecutor. And then one day he sets out on the road to Damascus. Why did he go to Damascus? Verse 12, in this connection. It's in connection to his persecution that he's on this journey. How ironic that it's on a journey that sought to carry out yet more persecution. In this connection, I was on my way to Damascus, and a light shone brighter than the sun. And everyone fell to the ground, meaning this is not some internal thing that Paul is seeing in his head. Everyone was aware of this light. And the Lord speaks to him, Saul, Saul. Old Testament theophanies call the name twice. This is God speaking. Who is it, Lord? 
He says, why are you persecuting me? Now notice that connection. Who is Paul persecuting? He's persecuting the church. And Jesus says, you're persecuting me. See the connection between the body of Christ and Christ. And he says, stop persecuting me and start proclaiming me. Three times in the narrative of Acts, we're told about Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. This is the last occurrence we read. Three times we're told. I think Luke is making this a point of emphasis for his readers. He wants us to realize how much this event drastically changed church history. Things would never be the same again on account of this one man's conversion. God would make this persecutor of Christians the proclaimer of Christ. And just think with me about the message that comes after. Now we read from Paul's hand, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I can't help but think that Paul is writing something of an autobiographical comment there. I am new in Christ. I don't kill Christians anymore. Think about the opening chapter to Galatians and how we read that biographical story and how they didn't quite believe it. Is it true that Saul now affirms and embraces the claims of the way? And see how this Damascus Road experience affects his thinking in every way. He talks about grace so much. But when you look at the grace that Paul speaks of, it's not simply a gospel of grace. Though he does preach a gospel of grace, he also says, my office, my apostolic office, is a position of grace. Paul says, there's no way I deserve this. I did nothing to contribute to the calling that I've received. Because he knows the life that he lived before his conversion. In fact, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. As you know, the persecutor becomes the persecuted. Five times he received 40 lashes less one. Many imprisonments, the narrative tells us. He was stoned and considered dead. And now he is pleased to say the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ has been shone into our hearts. The language of light that is so wrapped up in Paul's articulation of the gospel is a direct overflow from his experience on the Damascus Road. What does this mean for us? It means that Paul preaches a gospel of transformation. When you read his writings and he lays down very clear instructions for the way in which we're to live today, here is a man that underwent such radical life transformation that he knows nothing of cheap grace. Paul is a man that knows nothing of half-heartedness when somebody says, I follow Christ. Paul is a man who 
who was so marked by his own conversion and calling experience on the Damascus Road, that when he exhorts believers to obedience, he only ever anticipates radical life transformation. When I interview someone to come into membership in the church, I'll ask them to tell me about their testimony of salvation, and I'll say, tell me what has changed in your life. This was you as an unbeliever, now tell me something that's changed in your life. Because there should be a testimony with all of us of transformation that has occurred. Because that is the gospel that the Bible sets forth. A gospel of radical life transformation that does not allow for half-heartedness or limping between two opinions. This is the gospel that Paul preaches. Fourthly, Paul preaches a gospel of servanthood. Paul preaches a gospel of servanthood. He says, in this connection, verse 12, I journeyed to Damascus. At midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goes. Don't resist your divine calling. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness. I want to pause there. There is, throughout the theology of the book of Acts, a strong dependency upon the theology of Isaiah. So Luke already begins it as he writes his gospel, and there he's very eager to show that Jesus was the suffering servant. And of course, that's what we would expect. So Luke shows that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 49, all the servant songs, Jesus is that suffering servant. But it doesn't end in Luke, it carries on into Acts. Now think about this with me. In the first chapter of Acts, Jesus, the servant, ascends into heaven. He's not here on earth anymore. So that arguably creates a problem with the continuation of servant theology. And it's at that point that Luke starts to demonstrate that the mantle, the responsibility of servanthood gets passed on to the apostles. It begins in verse 8 of chapter 1, when Jesus says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There are actually three allusions there back to Isaiah. Probably the most important one is simply that phrase, to the ends of the earth. It comes from a servant song, namely Isaiah 49. This is the mission of the servant for his ministry to extend to the ends of the earth and specifically to the Gentiles. Now, what that does, it doesn't merely give a, an agenda, a geographical agenda for the disciples, but it just hints at the fact that they're going to have ministries now that look very much like the servant's ministry, a ministry of suffering. It becomes clearer back in Acts chapter 13 when Paul gives a speech and he quotes that very verse from Isaiah 49. 
God has given us a ministry to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Well, pause right there, Paul. God didn't give you that ministry. God was speaking to the servant there. So how is it that you can say with all authority, God has said to us that we're to have the the suffering servant ministry to the ends of the earth? And the point is, in accordance with his apostolic office, he says, I'm now the representative of the servant. This is why in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not saying in any way that Paul is is carving out a ministry that has an atoning work to it, but rather he's taking geographically where Jesus' ministry didn't go. He carries on in the same vein, which would include a ministry of servanthood. And so in Acts 26, as Luke recounts the occasion on the Damascus Road, we see the specific appointment is to be a servant and a witness. The witness is merely to the resurrected Christ. You have now seen the resurrected Christ. That puts you in that apostolic position. But Paul, you need to understand you're a servant. You're an Isaianic servant. You pick up the mantle of Isaiah 53 and the way in which your ministry will be accomplished is through your suffering. He goes on to say, this servant ministry is in order to open their eyes so that they might turn and they would receive forgiveness of sins. Open their eyes, turn from darkness, receive forgiveness of sins. And what you see in the narrative of Acts is that over and over again, There is a suffering on the part of the community and the suffering and the persecution can do nothing to thwart the spread of the gospel. And indeed, there are times when the suffering becomes the very catalyst by which the gospel goes forth. Now, what does that mean for us? All the way through this evening, I've been exhorting you to to make these themes your own. Paul's gospel is our gospel. What happened to Paul starts to form his theology, and that becomes our theology in the New Testament, and then that's how we live out our lives. Just a word of caution, as we read through the narrative of Acts, there is a mistake that people often make, which is to assume just because you see it in the narrative, it becomes a norm for the Christian life. We see it in the narrative, therefore it should be happening in our church. Um, That's a bad interpretive rule. Uh, You shouldn't expect flames of fire to come down on your head every time we gather. Uh, If you really want to extend that rule, then at some point you need to be involved in a shipwreck and have a snake bite your hand. And you better survive when that snake bites your hand. It breaks down very quickly. And so the rule that I tell my students is always narrative is not normative. Just because we see it in the narrative doesn't mean that it then becomes normative for us. Are there points of the narrative that we should seek to make some form of norm for the church today? And the answer is yes. What are those portions of narrative? There are two rules of thumb. Number one, if what you see in the narrative is later confirmed by some imperatives in the epistles, then it's safe to say this should become a norm. So when the believers gather together and they 
give themselves to the teaching of the word and they, they break bread together and they enjoy fellowship, we can back up those principles with clear instructions in the epistles. So that should become the norm for us. The other rule of thumb is to understand that there are certain things that Luke keeps repeating over and over again. And the sense is he wants this part of the narrative to start to become your own. He wants this aspect of the birth of the church to be a reality in this church. Now, I say all of that just to emphasize again, all the way through the narrative of Acts is the theme of suffering and servanthood. In fact, you cannot understand the book of Acts without a framework of suffering and servanthood, which means, Christian, you have been called to a ministry of suffering, sacrifice, of servanthood. And we must come to terms with that because that is the way in which the Lord is pleased to cause his gospel to flourish. Okay, last point. Paul preaches a world-transforming gospel. Paul preaches a world-transforming gospel. He says in verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all of the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And what he declared was that they should repent and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. I've already mentioned it once this evening. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 really is a good way to understand the rest of Acts. Jesus says to his disciples, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what you then see is that the narrative unfolds according to those regions. So it's a good way to understand the whole narrative. And Paul is actually alluding to that verse right here. I declared first to those in Damascus, because that's where this happened, but then look, in Jerusalem, throughout all of the region of Judea, and then also to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles there, he's substituting for that phrase, ends of the earth, because both terms are taken from Isaiah 49. So it's a, an easy interchange. Now, here's the interesting thing. As you're given that, that thematic verse by which to understand Acts back in chapter 1 and verse 8, and as Paul repeats it here and says, my ministry has been in accordance with that, there is arguably a uh, logical inconsistency. What do I mean? The gospel is to go first to Jerusalem, that's a city, then to Judea and Samaria. They're not cities, they're regions. And then to the ends of the earth or here to the Gentiles. Well, that's neither a city nor a region, but it's an ethnic term. So the mistake that we would make is to boil down the theology of Acts as a theology of geography, to say the gospel in the book of Acts spreads according to these geographical boundaries. Jesus, chapter 1, Paul, chapter 26, they're both doing so much more when they list these places and these terms. These are, if you like, geopolitical terms. The theology of Acts is not merely a theology of geographical progression of the gospel. Far more than that, it is a theology, I like to say, as Acts 17 says, a theology of turning the world upside down. It is a theology where we see the world turned upside down. 
Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the Gentiles, the ends of the earth. This gospel is shaking everything up. Everything is changing because of our proclamation of the gospel. And when you look at Acts chapter 17 and the men accused, here are the men that are turning the world upside down. What have they done? They proclaim Christ as king. That's it. They're turning the world upside down. What did they do? They proclaim Christ as king. And what that means is, as we look at both the narrative of Acts and all of the New Testament epistles that Paul gives us, as he's issuing those imperatives for how it is we live the Christian life, simple acts of gospel obedience turn the world upside down. We become the community that the Lord wants us to be when we pursue simple acts of gospel obedience. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and turn the world upside down. That is altogether different to the household code of the Greco-Roman Empire. It didn't work like that. Husbands were never called to live like that. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Implication, with this act of obedience, you will turn the world upside down. People will sit up and notice you. Philemon, forgive Onesimus and turn the world upside down. Because what he should have said in accordance with the culture was, here's Onesimus, do what you like with him because he ran away from you. And he says, I have a gospel that has transformed me and has the power to turn the world upside down. Philemon, forgive Onesimus. Children, listen, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, and turn the world upside down. These imperatives that form our everyday Christian existence are the means by which we proclaim Christ as King. We proclaim Christ as King and we live proclaiming that Christ is King. And as we do that, we testify to a watching world that we have a gospel that is powerful and turns the world upside down. Now, I know that you might be here this evening and your gospel is not Paul's gospel. My argument has been that Paul's gospel is our gospel. And if your gospel doesn't look like the kind of things I've been saying tonight, please just question whether you do indeed have a biblical gospel. Consider the requirement that Acts sets forth in the evangelistic speeches to turn from your sin and express faith in Christ. Knowing that as you do that, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of forgiveness. And with that, we live out a biblical gospel, one that turns the world upside down. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul's selection of Paul's sermon before King Agrippa has shown that Christianity spread with early Christians' commitment to servanthood along with suffering. If you're a Christ follower, you've likely read that the road to modern Christianity was not paved with ease and comfort. How is your life going? 
Could it be identified with serving others and a passion to reach the lost? Well, there's always more to hear and learn on this topic and more on our website, TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. Then select Broadcasts on our homepage to hear more about God's purpose for your life. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. And if you don't have a local congregation, come worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Tomorrow, it's part one in a new series titled, Where Can Meaning Be Found? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.